Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. This is the third part of a warning passage, and it uh, really is an invitation to us. Hebrews chapter 4. And you'll find it on page 1002 of the Pew Bible. Tonight, the author picks up on a word that he's mentioned a couple of times in chapter 3, the word rest. And now he focuses our attention on rest. Let me invite you to consider that subject tonight and our need for rest from the Lord. Not physical only, but spiritual and eternal rest. Hear the word of God. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 1 through 13. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, quote, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then... There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account Amen. This is God's word. May he cut our hearts with it. Let's look to him in prayer. And our Lord and our God, we pray that your word would bring joy to our hearts, 
that it would enlighten our eyes in the knowledge of Christ, that we would know the riches to which you have called us, uh, what is the hope that we have, what, what is the glorious inheritance we have in you. And so be our teacher tonight beyond the preacher's ability. Give us ears to hear you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This is a passage about rest. It's a rest which God provides. It's a rest which God's word offers to you. And it is a rest which God's people are to offer to others. There is rest. God offers it to you and his people are to offer this rest to others. Those three things tonight I want you to think about. In the first place, the rest which God provides. The availability of rest. And you've heard me say the word rest already perhaps a half a dozen or ten times. We read it ten times, rest or rested, in just this short passage. It's what we need and only God truly provides. Rest for our souls. You know the story of Madeline Murray O'Hare. I've told you portions of it before. She's now deceased. She was the founder and president of the American Atheist Society. She launched lots of attacks uh, from the 60s through the mid-90s on Christianity or against Christianity in public life. Her lawsuit uh, went all the way to the Supreme Court and led to the banning of the reading of the Bible in public schools. She also as you might imagine, opposed in the 60s, uh, praying in the schools. Well, her diaries became available after she died, and they are both interesting and they are tragic. Her marriage failed. Her son, this is not tragic from my perspective, her son became a Christian in 1980, and he became began witnessing for Christ, but she considered this a great tragedy. She, learning of it, commented, quote, one could call this a postnatal abortion on the part of a mother, I guess. I repudiate him entirely and completely for now and all times. He is beyond human forgiveness, she said, of her son. She felt, as it it appears in the diaries, that she had failed in every area of life and the things that she wanted to accomplish. Her, Her marriage fell apart. Her family didn't go the way that she wanted. Even her colleagues she didn't get along with. It's clear she didn't trust her fellow uh, colleagues in the Association of Atheists. She is a woman who had rejected Jesus... But her diary shows she desperately longed to be loved. She never felt like she got it. Six times in the diary she says, Someone, somewhere, please love me. And yet, we would say tragically, as far as we know, that she turned her back on the one who truly could love her and accept her and give her satisfaction, the greatest of everlasting satisfaction that the Bible promises. But she had no rest. She had turmoil in her heart. Augustine famously said of God, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless 
until it rests in you. And as best we know, she turned her back on the only place where she could get rest for her soul. But rest is what God offers to you and to me. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are heavy, uh, weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'll give you rest for your soul, says Jesus. The main emphasis here in Hebrews 4, getting back to that, is clear. It's a passage about rest that God offers you. But some things in this passage are also very confusing. At least I find them to be so. Uh, This is one of the more complicated arguments in the book of Hebrews. The main argument is clear. But the scripture quotations, the Old Testament allusions, and the logical connections of the argument can kind of muddy the water for you if you're reading it or hearing it read out loud. What's he talking about? The main emphasis is clear. Here's here's the main emphasis of his argument. Here's the the flow of the argument. Verse 1, the promise of entering his rest still stands. Verse 3, we who have believed have entered the rest. Verse 6, it remains for some to enter it. Verse 11, let us strive to enter the rest. This is the flow of the argument. There's rest from God. Believers have it. Some still need it. Don't miss it. This is the flow. But I think the passage is also difficult. And I think so in part because uh, of the way that the word rest is used in the passage. I think there are at least five nuanced ways in which he uses it. seems to circle around the idea of rest from at least five perspectives. Let me show you that uh, because I think it will help you as you puzzle your own way through this passage. First, there's Israel's rest in Canaan alluded to here, the promised land. Uh, I think you see it very clearly. In verse 8, he mentions Joshua, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day. He's speaking of the Israelites. He's thinking of them, that they had left Egypt by Moses. Their descendants entered Canaan by Joshua. Moses, you remember, didn't get to go into Canaan. He was up on Pisgah's mountain. He got to see it, but he didn't get to enter it. And so he says, but if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day. Uh, And so he's he's reminding them that so many had died in the wilderness, they didn't get into the promised land, and yet he's also saying, but that really wasn't such a big deal, that the promised land itself, the earthly Canaan. um, So you have this this, uh, Israel's rest in Canaan spoken of. Uh, Then you have also God's rest at creation spoken of. At verse 4, it says God rested on the seventh day from all his works. He's thinking of Genesis chapter 1, where God worked six days and spoke the universe into existence. 
And yet on the seventh day, he rested from his work of creation. He was done at the end of six days. He didn't go out of existence. He didn't stop governing the universe. He didn't stop caring for the universe. But he, he finished his activity of creation sixth day and he rested. He ceased from that labor as he took joy and satisfaction in it, looking at it and saying it is good. In fact, it is very good. So there's that second kind of rest, God's rest at creation. There's also an allusion to Sabbath rest or the fourth commandment, which is about the Sabbath. At verse 9, it says there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Sabbath is the pattern of God. Six days of work, one day of rest. That's the weekly pattern we are to follow. It has a heavenly fulfillment. But, but the idea of Sabbath is picked up um, because of the word he uses, and that should call to mind the fourth commandment. So you have a third kind of rest. Canaan, creation, fourth commandment, and then there's the believer's rest in Christ, which is now we rest our souls in Christ through believing in him. Verse 3, we who have believed have entered that rest. This is, he's trying to get them to remember. This is the important thing, believe in Jesus. And yet also there's a believer's rest in Christ, which is not yet. It is a future. It's not just now, but, but there's more to come in the consummation. Heavenly rest, eternal rest. I think you see some of that in verses 9 and 10. Well, I don't mean to confuse you by pointing you to all that, but as I puzzled my way through the text, I think you see all these different ways of thinking about rest. We, we long for, ultimately, the culmination of it all. As we read in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 10, the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, everlasting joy will be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now, we have begun in Christ to experience joy and gladness, but sorrow and sighing have not yet disappeared from the experience of God's people, though one day it is promised they will. And so, um, you know, you think about your own body, how exhausted you get, or how your emotions just cause you to be wrung out, or, or how an anxious heart keeps you restless at night in, in all these different kinds of ways. Sleep is good medicine, right? Or uh, the way the work week is long, but the Sabbath becomes an oasis in the midst of earthly cares. As God says to you, I don't want you to be like a slave in Egypt working seven days a week, 365 days a year. I want you to have seven and a half weeks of vacation in my kingdom under my rule every year. One day in seven, every week. Well, it's not just our body that needs rest, but our soul needs rest. God provides it in Christ. It's like his rest at creation in that we rest from our labors. It's like the rest of Canaan, which pictured and promised, but ultimately couldn't fulfill the rest that we need. And it's like the rest of the fourth commandment, the Sabbath rest, which points to our rest, and it is resting in Christ now, and it is looking to rest in Christ for forever. <laughs> There's rest. It's available. Second point. It's a rest which Scripture offers to you even today. 
And here you get into the argument for rest. The finer connections here show you that this is for you now. And so let me walk you through the passage showing you those connections. Verse 1, therefore, he says, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So he's got in mind, he has them in mind because of chapter 3. He's, he's had them picturing the children of Israel in the wilderness. They've come out miraculously from Egypt. They've passed through by God's miracle, the Red Sea on dry ground. They, they've been brought into freedom. They've come right up to the Jordan. They've even looked over at the promised land. They've been poised to enter it. But hundreds of thousands of them perished in the wilderness over the course of 40 years. Why? Chapter 3, verse 19 said they were not able to enter because of unbelief. And so he says, and yet there's still a promise of rest. The promise didn't go away. Verse 2, for good news came to us, justice to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. The point is, it's not enough just to be in a community where the gospel is proclaimed. You need to combine your hearing of the gospel with believing the gospel. And that's the very thing they didn't do. They heard the gospel, they wouldn't believe. The gospel, it says, was preached to them, just as it is to us. The gospel has always been the only way anybody is ever saved. Whether Old Testament saints or New Testament saints, there's only one way of salvation. It's always been just way of salva- one way of salvation. It is the promise of a redeemer. Now they had the promise looking forward and we have the fulfillment and we look back on a completed salvation. Jesus said uh, he had finished the work that the father had given him to do. On the cross, he cried out, it is finished. And then he was buried And then he was raised and he ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high because the work needed was done. Old Testament believers look forward to him. New Testament believers look back upon him. That's the point of Hebrews chapter 4 verse 2. They had the message of the gospel just as we do. But the message, look at the end of verse 2, the message they heard did not benefit them. Why didn't it benefit them? Because they didn't believe the message. That was their fundamental failure. But he says, verse 3, we believe and we receive. For we who have believed enter that rest, as it has been said. And here he quotes Psalm 95 again. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now that seems like the second half is really negative when the first half was positive and that's because the negative implies the positive. If some, end of that, if some shall not enter rest, then the logic of it here is that there must still be a rest into which some do enter. If some are barred, the thing itself exists and some can have it. He's already said some do, those who believe have it. If some are excluded, then some are included. So then he goes on to turn a corner from Canaan's rest to God's own rest, his rest on the seventh day. My rest 
it's called. God speaking, God speaking, my rest, the one under mine. Verse 4, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So what's he saying? For God, the seventh day is open. The seventh day continues. The first six days, if you look back at Genesis 1, finished with, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. On the seventh day, God rested. And it doesn't say, and there was evening and there was morning and another day. The seventh day is still ongoing, so to speak. This is the point of his argument. It's open-ended and we are invited into God's seventh day rest. God's Sabbath rest. It is eternal. It is everlasting. And it is rest from our works. It begins by resting in Christ and his finished work. We believe in him and we find rest for our soul. And that rest keeps going on and on and on forever. Verses 6 through 9, though many didn't make it into the promised land, that was not the ultimate rest, he says. There is a rest that remains for some to enter. Look at verses 8 and 9. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. He's he's reminding them, uh, again, of Joshua, who did get to take them into the promised land, yet the promised land wasn't salvation for them. It wasn't really the fullness of rest God intended for them, a dry, dusty bit of land, yes, flowing with milk and honey, as glorious as it was promised, was not the full and final salvation God intended for them, for anybody. The land promised something beyond itself. It was a foretaste. It was a foreshadowing. It wasn't the real thing. It pointed to the real thing, just as Joshua wasn't the real Savior, Joshua of the Old Testament, whose name means the Lord saves. He wasn't the real Savior. He pointed forward to a better Savior, Jesus, who in the Greek means the Lord saves as well. But the Jesus who comes is better than the Joshua who was. Because he gives the rest that we really need. The rest that was promised. And his, his argument is this, if the people had had the kind of rest that God intended to them to have when they did finally enter the promised land, then why hundreds of years later under David did we get a psalm that speaks of a rest that is still available? It's because Joshua didn't give them salvation rest. It's a useful picture, Canaan is. Failure to reach Canaan uh, was an earthly picture of pilgrimage with a goal unrealized. All that time they were together as the people, walking together through life together, following Moses, but never getting rest, dying in the wilderness because they would not believe in God because they had hard hearts. Don't be like them, he's saying. Believe in Jesus and he will give you rest. So in verse 10, it is a rest in which we rest from our works. 
just as God rests from his. We rest in Christ's finished work for us now. And then Christ does his work in us and through us in this life. And someday the time for work will be over. And in that great day there will be no turmoil, no trial, no tear, no temptation whatsoever. No sorrow, no sighing. Our pilgrimage will be over in the heavenly rest which yet awaits. And so he concludes his argument at verse 11 with an exhortation. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest or make haste to enter the rest. He's not talking about doing works to purchase rest. He's just saying, don't miss it. Don't miss out. Don't turn your back on Jesus. Don't walk away from Jesus. Embrace Jesus. He wants that so that no one will fall by the same sort of disobedience as the ancient Israelites. What kind of disobedience? Chapter 3, verse 19. The disobedience of unbelief. I realize. I may just have confused you more about this passage. I have puzzled my way through it and I'm not sure I've got it all. I know I haven't. Um, But the big picture is clear. Rest is available to you. Rest is offered to you. God's word here is offering it to you. The writer, like a good pastor, is offering it to you. Put your hope in Christ. Believe the good news. He offers you rest. Now let me make three points of application. Perhaps these will be more clear. One at verse 1, one at verse 12, and the final one at verse 13. Three points of application. And they all amount to this. It's a rest which God's people are to offer to others. Here's the application. Let me, let me make it to the church, to evangelists in the broadest possible sense of that term, and to non-Christians tonight. In the first place, to the church. Verse 1. Let us, he says, fear. Lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Let us fear, he says, as believing people that any among us would fail to actually enjoy this everlasting rest offered in Christ. As we contemplate the possibility of walking together as a community with people among us for decades, possibly not experiencing the forgiveness of God, Possibly not enjoying eternal life with God in paradise with us. He says we should fear. And here he doesn't mean the kind of godly fear that has reverence and respect for God that leads to obedience. He means it is a terrible thing for any to miss this. So don't be complacent about it. Don't be laid back about this. Don't say to yourself, well, it's none of my concern how those other people are doing spiritually. Do you belong to Christ genuinely? It is your concern, he says. If you don't care about people falling away, who will? Those who are falling away, of course not. Those who have fallen away, of course not. You and I are to be concerned. Am I my brother's keeper, the scripture asks, and the answer is absolutely we are. James chapter 5, verse 20, my brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, 
Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And so you see what he's saying about the church. A good church is not defined by the size of its building, the newness of its building, the number of the people who sit in the pew, or the amount of money raised over budget. That has nothing to do with whether you have a good church. But by God's standard, a quality church, and this cuts right to my heart, I am preaching to me, is one that leaves no stragglers to lag behind or perish in unbelief. That's God's measurement of a good church. May your pastor be, and may we together be, the kind of church where the discouraged are encouraged, where the weak find strength in the care of others, and where those in danger of wandering away are recalled to the truth in a spirit of loving concern. We should fear, should any among us be lost. Secondly, to evangelists, and I mean that in the broadest possible, to those who share or want to share good news with others. I mean, you have the gift of it. Verses 12 and 13, why are these words at the end of this whole passage about rest, these words about Scripture, Because scripture is God's voice. And today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Why the language of piercing? Because the hard heart is a deceived heart and it thinks it's impenetrable and it is not. And it thinks it can shield itself from God and it cannot. So don't let others who are unbelieving fool you by making you think they have such a hard heart that there is nothing that can get through to them. Because it is not true that nothing can get through to them. The word of God is the sword of the spirit and it can pierce right through a hard heart, but Christians are always in danger of thinking that there's no way, there's no how, there's nothing that can be done. But the message of the gospel is the weapon we have. It's the sword of the spirit. It is the power of God. Ravi Zacharias tells the story of a drive he took with another evangelist in the nation of Lebanon. Lebanon was then occupied by the Syrian army and in their control was quite repressive. So he and the pastor are driving, and they've got a van loaded with boxes of Bibles to be distributed that they're taking to another city. And Zacharias tells of the great anxiety they had as they were stopped at a military checkpoint, and one of the Syrian army guards pointed his gun right in the face of the driver, saying, what's in the van? Zacharias was horrified when the evangelist replied, oh, nothing but boxes of dynamite. And then he handed the shocked soldier one of the Bibles. And he explained it this way. Here's what I'm talking about. Read this and it will break into your life with God's own power. And so it does. The word of God is living and active. It is able to pierce through the hard heart. It is by the foolishness of preaching 
that people come to faith in Christ. We, bring, we aim to bring people to faith not by coercion, but by persuasion. Not by the sword of a soldier, but by the sword of the Spirit of God. And through it, God does His work. Jeff Thomas, who's a pastor and aborist with Wales, says uh, that a mother had called him to visit her son at the university there in Aberystwyth. So he says, I was happy to do so, but the kid was resistant and embarrassed, and he didn't really want to hear what Jeff had to say about the claims of Christ. So he says it seemed like an unfruitful and tense time, but his roommate sitting on a bed in the room was listening to all the conversation, and the next week he turned up at church. And eventually he became a Christian. He married a girl in their congregation. He said, I hadn't even been talking directly to him at all. And yet the word was effectual in his life because that's what God's word does. Let me speak to parents as evangelists. If you're dealing with a child who has a hardened heart, it's very easy to be tempted to look to some technique to change them. You're tempted to manipulate them or coerce them or force them or go out and buy the latest fad book in the Christian bookstore that promises you if you just do it this way, you'll be doing it God's way. And so do these 10 things and this will make your kid soft to the gospel. And it isn't true, but there is a better way. Keep on loving them. Be patient with them. Pray to God for them. And keep dripping the gospel message bit by bit over time into their ears. Because God works by that message. That word is living and active, piercing the heart. And if you yourself know you have a hard heart, but you have begun to fear for yourself, that's good. Trembling at the warnings is actually part of genuine faith. Therefore, stay under this word. Keep listening to this word and let this word pierce your heart. So now, third application to non-Christians tonight. If you're not a Christian, you know you're not a Christian tonight. We are delighted that you are here. We want you to sit and stew on this as long as you need to. Ask all the questions that you have. But if you walk away from Christ, be certain of this. You aren't fooling anyone but yourself. You may think you can hide from God, but God's word leaves you exposed. That's verse 13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And the image or metaphor here is either a grip of a wrestler on the throat that leaves you immobilized, or it is of a knife against the throat forcing you to keep the head back. In other words, the word of God, the dagger of God he's just been speaking of, either pierces through your heart and brings you to faith, or it sits at your throat, lifting your face to the eyes of God who sees all and knows all. You think God can't see your hard heart, that he won't judge an unbelieving heart 
evil heart, as the scripture says, don't be a fool. He isn't ignorant and he isn't powerless. But if you are here today hearing these words, then you are not beyond the rest promised. Today is any day you hear the offer that Jesus will give you rest for your soul. Believe in him and you will have it. As a missionary who went to a people with no word that he could find for believe. And he was working in the fields to learn their words and they took a break and a guy threw himself on the ground in the shade of a tree and he said to him, what did you just do? What's the word for that? And so he translated John 3.16 this way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever throws himself down on him will not perish but have everlasting life. If you want rest for your soul, throw yourself down on Jesus and rest in the shade under his tree. Let's pray. Father, thank you that Jesus gives rest and shade and the hope of gladness and joy forever. I pray by your grace, by the work of your spirit, through your word, that all might enter into this rest. To your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.